Welcome to the Abolitionist Sanctuary Podcast, where we consider critical conversations and call to actions at the intersections of faith and abolition. This week's episode is in conversation with Candace Marie Benbo, the author of Red Lip Theology. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm so excited. I am Candice Marie Benbo. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. Um, I am wearing a camouflage sweatshirt that says, note to self, you are doing great. And I have on deep pink, also known as fuchsia glasses. This is, uh, this is Tarte's lip paint and the color bay. And I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to be here. And and let's just be clear, Candace is my D9 sister. So her distinction between red and fuchsia was a serious one. Because <laughs> uh, it is a serious matter. <laughs> so let's get right to it. In your introduction, you reflect upon two concurrent events in 2012 that revolutionized your faith, the death of Whitney Houston and Rekia Boyd. You shared how the death of Rekia Boyd happened just days before the church mobilized a national campaign called Hoodie Sunday. This was in response to the unjust killing of Trayvon Martin. However, when you inquired about the salience of Rekia Boyd's death, the church returned silence. Could you share how these two women parallel your faith journey and why the omission of Black women by some churches is signifying of harms caused by Western Christianity? Yeah, I um, for me, Whitney was uh, the quintessential church girl. She uh, embodied everything that I thought you were supposed to be. Like She was beautiful, poised. She could sing. Um, the church loved her. She, at every turn, professed her faith um, in a way that was bold and unapologetic. And I, I always felt like that was how we were supposed to be as, as women, Black women of faith, um, as when I was a, a little girl. Of course, as I got older, you know, um, there was the stigma of the good girl, you know, the good girl who marries the bad boy, right? That everybody thought was cute until you actually live it. Um, and... And then you begin to see some of the the glitter that was, uh, or some of the the finish on that veneer tarnish, right, of her image. And it be you be, really began to see what it looked like for her to struggle um, to one be herself um, and maintain this image that so many in the church believe that you're supposed to uphold. And I remembered when she died feeling very hopeless. I remember, you know, saying to my mother, well, what's the hope for the rest of us? And my my mom was like, what you mean what's the hope for the rest of y'all? And I remember saying, like, if she couldn't figure it out, right, if 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 the the weight of this kind of purported holiness and piety is so frustrating that we are engaging in self-harm in order just to be numb 
you know, to, so that we don't have to deal with it. What is the hope? And that was really the catalyst after the day after watching her funeral with my mother and my grandmother, I wrote my letters. I wrote the essays uh, that would accompany applications to pursue a master's of divinity. Um, when Rakia died, it was a very, um, excuse me, when Rakia was killed, it, it, it felt very different because you watched this mobilization around what had happened to Trayvon and the, and, and the church was going to have this very defining moment, which I, which Hoodie Sunday was powerful. And I think it's one of the most powerful cultural cultural moments um, of Black church in in this 21st century. Like I think it I think it is powerful. And at the same time, you know, when I when I was like, what y'all gonna do for Rakia? Are you gonna oh we I heard pastors pastors told me that they had they were leaving that to women's ministries or they said her name in the prayer. Um and it was very clear that the plight of Black boys and Black men was never going to be seen at the level of the, the plight of Black girls and Black women. And to be frustrated about that almost seemed nonsensical because it was like they were telling us, you know, that this is what, what, um, what was going to happen. And I just I remember feeling like it's got to be different than this, like that, like that there has to continue to be in every generation. Um, there are there are women who who cry loud, right, and say like that these things cannot take place. Um, per- why I thought it was important um, is because, and I think we we. We've actually talked about this um, in our in our sisterhood, but we talked a lot about how when you talk when black millennial women are writing in public spaces or have um, front facing public careers, whether it be activists, whether it be writers, public intellectuals, many of them are not connected to churches. Many of them are not connected to faith. And for a lot of reasons, you know, harm, uh, the ways, the persistent sexism, persistent homophobia, um, the classism that is present in churches. And so they distance themselves um, from from churches. And when I was writing one, even if I'm never, even if I hold the church accountable and it can get on my nerves and I can tell, tell pastors about themselves, I was never going to leave the church, even if I had to take a minute from it. And I think it's important that there are women who are who remain connected um, to churches or remain connected to faith um, writ large that write about our faith experiences publicly. And so for me, I needed to be very clear of how Rakia and Whitney's deaths, both from a from the standpoint of my faith, um, were very uh, transformative moments for me 
because I was not seeing them. I couldn't see them outside of the lens of being a bl- a young black woman of faith because that's what that's who I am. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, something that really struck me is you said that they would say her name in prayer. And I was thinking about the hashtag campaign, Say Her Name. And mm-hmm. while church folk were saying names in prayer, there were other people that were saying her name in the streets right. and actively protesting state violence that disproportionately targets poor Black women. And it made me think about the ways in which Black women are perceived and constructed as unworthy and undeserving Mm -hmm. of protection. And a lot of this is rooted in church teachings and practices, particularly in the introduction penned by Melissa Harris Perry. She opens with a one-word sentence, sin, Mm -hmm. period. She -hmm. continues by sharing that her favorite lipstick color is called sin. In your estimations, how are notions of sin and hell even used to judge, condemn, blame, and punish Black women as deviant, immoral, evil, unworthy, and bad? How do these perceptions play out in the church and the larger society? Too often, we forget or dismiss how... um, particularly during enslavement, um, there there were no ways that slaves, that the enslaved could ever be considered right. Even if they were good slaves, they were never humans because they were property and they were slaves, right? Black women were always this wanton, sexualized being for the purposes of production, reproduction, whether it was to do the work themselves or to reproduce the workforce, right? And so our our bodily agency was never ours. Like it, it, it was never ours. It always belonged to someone else. When we when we get into reconstruction, it still isn't ours, right? Because there is this idea that if women are chaste and pure, Black women are respectable and pious, then we will be safe. And then we can also rear children that are respectful, respectable, poised, chaste. And thus we then continue to produce these stellar um, Black families that then create Black communities that we believe will be safe because we are following the script. We're following the rules. Anytime sisters move out of that, right? Anytime we move out of that, out of alignment of that, then we're brought into question. We are, um, because it's not just, it's not just being out of alignment for social, you know, purposes. You are out of God's, uh, like, this is about kingdom building, right? This is about being, being, um, worthy enough (laughs) 
to be in community with the right kind of people. The the scary and the sad part that unfortunately not many sisters have, have begun to grasp is that we never are able to meet that standard. The pendulum keeps swinging and the goalpost keeps moving, right? And so sin and uh, these these social and moral um, parameters, if you will, aren't about individual responsibility and accountability as much as they are about regulation and control, right? How do we, in this instance, how do we keep women, Black women, respectful enough that the right man will want them and that they can go and have families that are are seen with dignity and pride. It doesn't matter if that man has families everywhere, right? A family on each side of town. And it doesn't matter if they put all of the work into these kids, into their kids, and their kids just act like they don't want them. They just want to just be and do whatever. It will always be the woman's fault and the woman's responsibility because in in her she has failed to live up to a responsibility she has to be a a good righteous godly upstanding black woman it breeds so much shame i i have thought a lot since since um Relative theology has come out about the shame that the women of our mother and our grandmother's generations lived with that they never told us about. Because I think about the shame that I live with that I don't tell anybody about, that I have to fight every day to unlearn and to refuse to to believe and to think, right? Like I have to I have to think myself free, right? I have to I have to believe myself free. Even even you know, it don't matter how much cone I got. It don't matter how like how much uh, Katie Cannon and 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 um Renita Weems and and all of that's this over there on my um on my my uh, bookcase and behind me, it doesn't matter how much I have of that. The truth is I grew up in a faith context that did a lot to make me believe that my body, my ability to think, my ability to make decisions didn't solely belong to me. And anytime I make a decision or anytime I I exercise my bodily autonomy, there's a lot of shame that's attached to that. And, you know, I think that so much of so much of our of of our church culture, so much of the wheels that make the bus go round and round function on black women's shame. Function on this idea that like we're not worthy, so we need to do what we need to do to get worthy. And so much of that getting worthy is us staying connected to churches, giving what we don't have, 
praying and, and feeling like if we do all of these things, then whatever it is that we want, we'll have sewing and fasting to get these um, to get these kind of objective ends that don't always manifest in the way that we think that they should. Yeah, this narrative of deviance and this myth of Black women as unworthy shows up in church teachings, mm-hmm. as you stated, through sin, through respectability politics, um, through seeing Black women as blameworthy, mm-hmm. right? Um, as somehow responsible for their own misfortune. And we see that through various Mm -hmm. church teachings. But we also see how those church teachings parallel societal perceptions of deviance that have punitive consequences in law and policy um, that target and disadvantage Mm -hmm. Black women. I'm thinking particularly of the welfare reform uh, policies, right? The ways in which there's this notion of personal responsibility Mm -hmm. that, you know, written within legislation is this idea that Black mothers are unworthy, Mm -hmm. that Black mothers have somehow failed the American family system, that Black mothers are raising delinquent and criminal sons, um, and that Black mothers may not be sinful in public discourse, but they're immoral, Right. right? And the scary part to that, Nakia, is the way that that the majority of Black churches hold such a conservative viewpoint that they agreed with <laughs> with those analogies, right? They preached those analogies when, again, when when a mother, a single mother, falls on hard times, it's not, you know, the fault of the daddy who walked out and left her with however many children and, you know, could care less how they eat. It's her fault that she chose that man. You know what I'm saying? Like it, it becomes so so the so churches, you're getting it from from structural systems that are inherently racist and and inherently uh they are they are gendered in a way that that refuse Black women dignity, right? And in the spaces where, and in the instances where churches should be pushing against that and and advocating for, for policies that, not only policies, but, but advocating for, for ideologies that enforce the policies that reinforce Black women's humanity, you hear the same foolishness in churches grounded in God speak, right? And 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 very harmful interpretations of scripture. Sometimes they don't even use that. It's just a tangent, right? But it was said from the pulpit by the pastor on a Sunday morning in a sermon in front of a congregation. So therefore it must be God ordained and it must be true. That is one that is why we rail against the church in the way that we do, right? And unfortunately, this is the one thing that I I I don't understand why they don't get. You can't be out there protesting when something happens and you and you get seen. Like here's the truth. We need we when when it is as egregious as Amaya Arbery, when it is as egregious as Breonna Taylor, 
and George Floyd. We need y'all, you know, out there, vocal. We need the presence. And at the same time, we need a, a, a shift in the teaching and the preaching in our in our congregations that suggest that the ways that society sees us is right. Because on some level, the ways that we're preaching are counterintuitive and counterproductive to the protest that we're doing when, when we are harmed. It's counterproductive. And unfortunately, because our because those institutions and to a much larger extent our communities have not begun to value still the lives of black girls, the lives of black women, the lives of queer people and other marginalized uh, marginalized folks in our communities in the same ways that they value the lives of straight and straight presenting <laughs> black boys and black men, it continues this vicious cycle. It continues a vicious cycle that we are having to, that we still feel exhausted because we are, we're in the midst of it. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and to that extent, the church becomes complicit and mm-hmm. reproducing the social injustices and these carceral logics. The idea exactly. that we have to punish anyone who is a deviation from or an aberration from normative standards, whether those normative standards exactly. are respectability, right? Whether it's notions of piety or even gender, right? That they're, they're, exactly. that we have to punish anyone who's transgresses the boundaries of acceptable norms. And so you you nailed it when you said in your book, the Black church has been violent toward Black women, right? Full stop. Mm-hmm. And so, Candace, you mentioned in your response that we have to unlearn these harmful theologies, these, these harmful teachings and practices. So I want to ask you, why should the church care about Black women, Right. Um, and, and, and then from there, I want to talk about kind of your pivot toward more constructive teachings, more helpful teachings and practices through the lens of Dolores Williams and Sisters in the Wilderness. Yeah. Um, I mean, first the, the, the black church, the church should care about black women because we're part of creation, right? That we are, we are living human beings and it is just right to be decent and good um, to human beings, and if they can't get that part, um, the church the church should care about black women because without black women there is no black church. It it is just not there, right? When when still um, between eighty to eighty five percent totally collectively, but in much larger percentages when you're looking at individual church. Um, church makeups, when that is largely Black women, you need to shift in your priorities and your care, right? If Black women everywhere did not tithe and did not give an offering, what what would happen on a Sunday? Like if every sister sat down and didn't give a dime, 
right? Of course, you're not going to do that because, I mean, you know, people will, there are a lot of sisters who are like, wait, they could care less about the ways we talk about feminism and faith. But that just goes to one, the, the power that Black women have when it comes to the church. But part of that for me has been, you know, how working to, working to figure out not, it was very easy to, to articulate that from an academic lens, right? I mean, that is the beauty of womanist theology and the work that they have done, that the first and second generations of womanists have done laying the groundwork for Black women's experiences in America. So it's easy to figure out how to articulate that in that space. What was what was much more difficult is how does that translate for the sisters in the way that you needed to so that you can have these conversations? For me, that is where uh, Sisters in the Wilderness became extremely instructive, right? Um, here you have the story of hate, like the way that Dolores Williams outlines and and uses the story of Hagar to really distill um, Black women's experience in America. This this idea of the ways that we are forced to participate in a certain kind of surrogacy, right? And the gendered and racial oppression we get from both sides, that this is not just a situation in which we are getting this from men, um, but we are also getting this from white women and, and and these structures. And yet we have this God who does not rescue us or, or rescue Hagar from what she is experiencing, rather sends her back, right? And so this 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 reality that black women are not being rescued which is infuriating, right? Like, it's like I want to be, I want to be very clear, and I think that um, what I appreciate about um, Sisters in the Wilderness and the way that um, Dr. Williams uses this is that this isn't to, this isn't a moment where you just are like, "Who go God," right? Like that. This is like this is a situation. Like, wait a minute. Like, you literally have all power. Like you literally have all power to recreate and do something different. And you are saying, go back and I'll make sure that your 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 kid is good. Right? Like and, and here's again the reality that even her own personhood in that moment didn't matter. It was it was about her child. And I'm not a mom. I, 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 though I care for the children that are in my life and would, and would gladly give mine for them, for them, so I, for theirs. So, and I know that that is a, I know that on another level, mothers, good mothers, um, who care about their children will do all that they can to protect and ensure their children's thriving. And <laughs> you should have, and it should matter that you thrive too, right? And so one of one what has been helpful is grounding red lip theology in this piece around like 
hey, so deliverance may not come <laughs> the way that the way that we think that it is. Like we probably gonna be fighting these churches until God calls us home, and <laughs> we can figure out how to thrive. And how to make sense in a world that don't really know how to handle and deal with us because we matter enough for us to have room and space to figure that out. That has been the gift that that book, that the book and and, and, um, particularly Sisters in the Wilderness, but that's been the gift that that first wave gave me is like, yeah, a lot of these systems are not are not upending for us. Um, what does it mean to thrive anyway? And I think that that is where I I hope relative theology sits that that in that question. I hope that 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 it sits there as well as whatever other work I produce. I hope that it sits in that question. Yeah, I really like the direction of that response because it comes full circle, right? It responds to um, the church teachings and practices that are harmful and cause the omission of Black women, right? Um, That imposes violence upon Black women, Mm -hmm. that constructs Black women as sinful and unworthy, and that forfeits their agency. And so in one of your chapters, before we pivot um, fully to Red Lip Theology, Uh, In your book, one of your chapters makes the claim that we should all be womanists. So I'm wondering, what was your process to arrive at this claim that we should all be womanists after expressing the hurt you experienced by some womanists, even the ones you called mentors and models? How can womanism heal? Um, I think that the... The way that I was able to to arrive to that is to realize that my even though even though the academy gave me the name and the language of womanism, um, I was seeing that in my house and in my family, right? That like you know I like my mama was womanist, like my grandma was womanist, like they were she was raising me to be womanish, right? And in in all of the ways that we frustrate her. <laughs> Um, she gave me that room and that space. And what what I what I really tried to do, um, even even though people people don't, there's some who don't like the essay, but what I what I tried to do was really hold intention a deep respect for for what got me to where I am, along with a deep and profound like hurt and disappointment for what I experienced and treat as a as as relates to how I was treated and also a a nuance that black women experience so much oppression working to achieve any level of of accomplishment right we already experience it on a day-to-day basis. But be a Black woman that's trying to get a PhD. Be a Black woman that's trying to advance a career in the academy or any field, right? Like, there are going to be some painful wounds and there are going to be some painful scars. And if you don't, and that's with anybody, if you don't do the work to heal from that, talk about it, process it, 
you you run the risk of harming and wounding other other people and namely it can be the sisters who who came up and wanted to be just like you right and i think that for me it was not so much a call out as it also wasn't it was um a clarion call that we all got to be very like we all got to think through what we're doing um and how we are how we are showing up in the world because there are so many sisters that are looking to us trying to figure stuff out that want to be mentored that want to be that want sojourners <laughs> that will walk alongside with them and we cannot we cannot unattend to our wounds um, because when we do that, then we run the risk of bleeding on them and hurting them. And when that happened to me, I really had to sit and I was like, yeah, like I, they weren't the only woman that I saw, you know, I, I saw it in my home, right? I see it in my, I see it in the way that my 87 year old grandmother still cares for people and still centers black girls and black women in our family and in her neighborhood and in in the ways that she can, right? Because unfortunately, for a lot of us, womanism in and of itself can be a very classed conversation because a lot of us got introduced to it formally in the academy, right? So what does it mean for a sister like me who's very clear that that's not the only group I'm writing to, right? Like, I I went to school. Like, I'll never forget. My mom was like, when you go get these degrees, it's not... You You take every one of your homegirls that was told that she couldn't get a degree in those classrooms with you. Like, she may have been smarter than you. She may have... You know, she could probably get in this degree in this program and work harder than you. But the opportunities were taken from her and given to you in a very different way, right? And so my mom would always tell me, you're not in you're not in these spaces and given these opportunities for as she would say, you and your wonderful self, right? Like like you are doing this work for somebody else. And for me, it was like, all right, some sisters may not the only time they may have ever heard of Dolores Williams and Sisters in the Wilderness was because they picked their red braille of theology. But I wanted them to be able to read that essay and be like, but they auntie is a womanist, right? <laughs> that that they grew up, the the lady who did, who did their hair from the, every Easter, who, you know, is a womanist, right? Like, like that this is that they don't have to feel like they cannot access a conversation an ideology, a framework, a way of living that is centered around them simply because they they don't have college debt <laughs> or or credit hours. Like I I didn't want that. I didn't want that to be the case. Listen, you mentioned your grandmother. Shout out to Miss <laughs> Helen Bimbo. Uh, thank you for sharing her with us. Um, and so. Redlip Theology, as I'm reading um, your fabulous book that's written extremely well, uh, it is certainly a gift to us. I want to thank you for that. So if you could just say, what is Redlip Theology? 
And can you share how Red Lip Theology provides this alternative response? So Red Lip Theology is the means through which I, as um, a Black millennial woman of faith, uh, see God, myself, and the world, and all of the the um, the 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 interconnected parts of that relationship. It brings space for the ways that many of us as Black millennial women were raised, were were context in both a hip hop culture and Black church culture, and they are very much. Um, <laughs> polar opposites, but more alike than um, than I think both of them would like to give each other credit for it, right? But like, I felt like it was important to write, one, I am a millennial. So writing from a millennial perspective, because in many ways, Nakia, like our generation is the last bridge, right? Like, I remember what it was like to be in elementary school and taking a computer class, right? I I literally can put myself back and have and that big dot matrix printer where you had to tear the paint, the stuff off the sides. And you remember how you had to tear the pieces of you remember you had to and you had all the paper, all the paper came in one long thing and you had to tear it to have your one piece of paper. Like I remember that. My cousins do not my younger cousins don't know a world without technology. I actually have cousins who were born the year that Barack Obama was pre- was elected president. So they don't know a world where a black man and a isn't president and a black woman isn't vice president, right? So there's certain there's certain ways that our lives are very different. And I wanted the ability to to speak to the the unrefined <laughs> um, and and the refusal to refine it, right? Um, nature of of some of our positions, um, the ways that we integrate integrate ourselves in um, for the whole of us. In ways that it has always felt to me, and you know, I've I've shared this, and other people have said it, um, and have agreed that I never felt like I could do that. That women who are writing, you know, and to 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 a to a point, millennial scholars are just getting to a place where you know folks are finishing degrees and are writing their first monographs and getting published. And yet you still wonder, is that even a space that womanist theology is interested in going in? Like, what is it, what does it mean for the unrefined woman, ratchet woman, <laughs> to be, to be the, to be the, 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 the poster so you, if you will, of womanism, of womanist theology, like what does that look like? Uh, I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's where they want to go, um, but I do think that I, I don't think I do think that there's space for for that sister and there's space for that conversation, and I hope that relic theology um, is is seen as the 
kind of forbear in breaking that space. Wow, that's really deep, uh, Candace. It's almost as if, if I may take the liberty, it's almost as if you are using womanist theology against womanist theology. Mm-hmm. Oh, I am. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so the ways in which womanist theology has somehow taken on the, the very qualities of the systems we are trying to resist, right, and, mm-hmm. and are critiquing and calling to question, the ways in which um, there's aspects of womanism that's reproducing the elitism, mm-hmm. the respectability, punishing and rejecting anyone who pushes normative boundaries, mm-hmm. right, by not pursuing a PhD or mm-hmm. whatever it is, right, um, by being ratchet, by wearing a red lip, and you're saying rather than rather than further perpetuate that elitism, that you want to do an in, an inverse of values similar to Katie Cannon, mm-hmm. right? You want mm-hmm. to invert these values so that the ratchet become the face yeah. of a red lip theology, yeah, and not elitism as it is to womanist theology. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. So in the context, the audience is very interested in abolition. In the context of abolition, what is the significance of red lip theology for women who are punished for transgressing dominant patriarchal and respectable norms? And how does red lip theology respond to punishment and carceral logic that are used to police Mm. even our lipstick color and our bodies? So if you were to to frame red lip theology through an abolitionist lens, what would that look like? Um, part of it would have to be um the space that get that that seeks to embrace freedom within like this this fugitive freedom within captivity, right? Of like um because the truth is a an embodiment of um relic theology is already a certain marked body um you are you are welcoming a certain kind of and i want to be very very careful when i say that but you are but and it's not and i let me back up it's not that you are welcoming but you are but you know that the freedom that you are choosing to live into is both dangerous and threatening and criminal, right? It is criminal um, from, in many stands, in many, like to be a Black woman, a free Black woman that lives into her body in the way and your freedom in the ways that relative theology suggests that you should is to be a body marked for carcerality, right? Like it is to be that body. What it is also to be is a a kind of spiritual antidote, I would say, to 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 accept, right? that one cannot take my life I lay it down right you know what i'm saying like like that this is not that this that this kind of that this as as jesus would say right like that this kind of 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 freedom that this kind of um inherent fugitive 
dangerous, transformative freedom is not something that can ever be taken from me. Even if I I am living in a certain constricted and constrained reality, right? And so on two folds, it, it pushes, actively pushes against systems that oppress, but also it affirms with deep theological principles and a deep well of spirituality that we are always above the very things that seek to oppress us, right? That not, like, I wish that I had looked it up before we talked, but it's, it is, and I, I have not thought about it in a long time. And I'm thinking about it in this conversation. I'm thinking about what, um, what Troy Davis wrote right before he was put to death and he and it was something to the effect of like they can't hold his body right like 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 even this system like they thought that they like they thought they were killing me you know what i'm saying like but they can't even hold they they didn't even do that right part of where what are what what I am, where I am, and I've talked to you about it a bit too, where where my thoughts around relic theology and abolition continue to land is what does it mean for us to, what does it mean for, uh, for Black women to embody a very real um, mentality of freedom um, that is not encumbered by systems um, of bondage. That does not mean, right, again, going back to Dolores Williams, that don't mean that them systems go away. It also don't mean that we don't we don't war against and fight against those systems. I want to be very clear about that because we are called to do that. And, and, and yet, how do we live a life that says they don't want us to be free, but we're going to be free anyway? Right. Like for me, that is a red lip theology abolitionist ethic to be free anyway. Ashay, to be free. Candace, if you were to just tell us for red lip theology, what does it mean to profess the divinity and beauty of black womanhood? I'm actually getting chills and kind of getting teared up. And I knew this question was coming. But in the context of this conversation now that we've had this conversation, I'm thinking about my mama. And um, I'm thinking about all of the ways and every day that she was tired and went to work because I needed to eat. <laughs> um, because I, she took a second shift because I wanted to go on a field trip. She worked nights because she wanted to ensure that the second week of July, we went on a family vacation. I am thinking about all of the times that I looked at my mama and she was probably tired and trying to figure out how she was going to pay everything. And all I saw was God in my house. Like she was and is still the most beautiful woman in the world to me. And she 
was the first guy that I knew. I feel like that when I when I think about Black women, um, I feel like that when I think about our ability to show up for each other and for the people that we love, even when we do not have it in us to show up. Um, I think about it when we hold each other accountable to the best of who we know that we can be, right? That like, and the fact that sometimes we don't even want to hear it, but we know that it's true. Um, I'm thinking about the fact that we have been God for each other in ways that I believe have made God proud. Um, um, We have saved each other over and over and time and time again. Like I, I, um, there were times when Black women, when my sisters literally picked me up out of a pit, right? There were times when my sisters looked at me and was like, you don't look like yourself. You ain't acting like yourself. You ain't loving yourself, right? Um, and there are the times where they celebrated with me and were proud of me and I was proud of them. That is a full and a sacred life. To be called to be a Black woman, <laughs> to be created and called to be a Black woman is a very divine gift. And I I hope one thing I wanted to do with Relic Theology was to make that clear, right? That like Black women, Black womanhood is a divinity. It is. It's a sacred divinity. And I also wanted to make it clear that in it being a sacred divinity, we are still very much human and fragile and can make mistakes and are broken and can heal and can break again and heal again, right? That, that, that that is the beauty and the sacredness of black womanhood is that we find ways to to thrive and live um and be whole that's extremely powerful i want to dedicate this podcast to miss deborah <laughs> bimbo your mother thank you and to miss carol Mercy Smith, my mother, Mm -hmm. and all Black women and mother who strive to make a way out of no way. Mm. And for those Black women who remind us to make our mantra, I found God in myself and I loved her. I loved her fiercely. Fiercely. Thank you so much for being with us, uh, Candace Marie Bimbo. For our audience, please remember to pick up your copy of Red Lip Theology. Uh, it is a must read and you have to get your copy today. Thank you. Thank you.